Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Hey, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. This is another special episode. This one will have uh, Antonio Chacha's testimony to the Ohio Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee. Thanks for listening. It's really hard to know that if you're charging appropriately or not, because there could be a, there could also be a point where, say, you know, you charge five dollars, and then you know maybe it was higher than that that they would have paid for it, but you don't get that two dollars back very often, if ever. Um, so that's you know, it's again, there's it's very hard to say a price, and I'm not trying to be mercurial when I say that, but just because that's the process. So to me, transparency at all levels. I think the single PBM is a, a good start to the right way, to be honest with you. I, I always want to reserve judgment until I see what happens, because maybe it just goes awry, although I would hope it wouldn't. But that t- in transparency, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant, okay. not just for COVID. That's been helpful. Thank you. Just a reminder to the committee members, JMOC has litigated this for several months. So we have a fix in place. It was passed two budgets ago, and we're going to see how it works out. Are there further questions? Seeing none, thank you, Mr. Geyer. Thank you, Chairman. The Chair would now like to call Antonio Chow Chow, President of Three Axis Advisors. Good afternoon. Acting Chairman Romanchuk, uh, great to be with you today. Great to be back before this committee. Um, before I begin, you know, a lot of times we talk about PBMs, we tend to talk about it in, an, in a negative sense in relation to managed care. Um, you know, I'd like to start by saying that you know, we've had a lot of experience working with the managed care plans over the years, back when I was with the Ohio Pharmacists Association. It was, it was very much Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, and over the years, uh, I think as a result of some of the scrutiny that's happened within the legislature, but also relationship building that didn't exist prior to. Um, the, the MCOs uh, and their, uh, the current ones that we've been able to work with have been very, uh, very, very uh, positive in working towards solutions. Uh, and uh, in my opinion, I'm a believer in managed care. Um, I think managed care has gotten complicated. Uh, vertical integration is not necessarily an inherent evil but it inserts new complications into how we look at managed care and how they, how, where their incentives are within the supply chain. Now, what we're gonna talk about pharmacy today, obviously I think a lot of the learnings here can be extrapolated as more and more insurers buy physician practices, uh, have call centers, et cetera, where the insurers become the provider. I don't mean to, again, not to say that that's a bad thing, but it's keeping a, a close watch on how your hired, you know, uh, MCOs carry out the benefit for beneficiaries in Ohio. So, um, for those of you who don't know, I was previously with the Ohio Pharmacists Association. I uh, did that for about 10 years. Uh, and uh, throughout, throughout that time, learned a lot about uh, PBMs. Uh, to Representative West Point, I couldn't spell PBM you know, when I walked through the doors. Um, pharmacists were complaining to me about erratic ways that PBMs compensate pharmacies. You know, every time you were filling a prescription, it was really a roll of the roulette wheel. You didn't know if you were going to get paid below the cost of the medication, you were going to get, you know, a, a break even, or whether you're going to make a lot of money on a medication. It, just, it created perverse incentives at the pharmacy, and it also created um, an inability to plan for your business because you had no idea whether or not you were going to be in the positive one month, the negative one month. It was a roller coaster. Well, in the middle of that, in the summer of 2016, pharmacies came to me and said, look, we are getting massively cut in our Medicaid program. Uh, and that set me off on a journey to try and learn a little bit more about drug pricing data because we all complain about the cost of prescription drugs, but we don't really have a good idea of how the sausage is being made. And candidly, a lot of pharmacists don't even understand the supply chain that they're stuck with in the midst of. Uh, I launched a nonprofit called 46 Brooklyn Research just simply to take Medicaid drug pricing data, publish it, make it easily understandable to the public. Uh, and then uh, when we launched in 2018, we were bombarded by um, industry and bo- bombarded by employers that were seeking you know, greater detail on how money flows to the drug supply chain and how patients and employers and state Medicaid agencies are ultimately exposed to those costs. So let's start with the fundamentals. What is the price? Um, well, it depends on what you're talking about. 
in the prescription drug supply chain, at any given moment, you can quantify price in a lot of different ways. And what I usually like to say is, if there's more than one price, you have no such thing as price. And so because of that, a lot of prices are a result of private negotiations uh, between two willing entities or somewhat forced entities. Uh, those negotiations are, because they're proprietary, they are hidden. And because, back to the Kroger example, all right, you buy a $20 gallon of milk at Kroger, you know you're getting ripped off. If you get charged $20 for lisinopril, I don't know. What's the right? What's the right price? I have no idea. And so because they are, because these uh, uh, negotiations happen in private, and because drug pricing more broadly is very complicated and complex, it is incredibly prone to manipulation, not just by PBMs, but all members of the drug supply chain. So that's where PBMs come in. Decades ago, as more and more medicines entered the market and prescription drug costs started growing more, um, at a much more rapid pace, plan sponsors began seeking ways to find balance. Maybe I shouldn't cover all of these drugs. Maybe I shouldn't pay the pharmacy whatever they bill me. And so PBMs were brought in to act as a necessary friction against drug makers who left to their own devices would like to charge as much as they can, who sell to wholesalers who would also like to charge as much as they can, and sell to pharmacies who would also like to charge as much as they can. So PBMs were brought in to facilitate a more efficient transaction and act as a balancing uh, uh, measure on behalf of the people that pay the bill. But as PBMs work to control that end of the drug supply chain, the drug makers, the wholesalers, the pharmacies, et cetera, they also began to develop business interests. PBMs aren't PBMs. When you think PBMs, you should also be thinking mail order pharmacy. The largest pharmacies in the country are large mail order warehouses that are owned by the largest PBMs. PBMs are Fortune 15 companies. They're actually bigger than the drug makers and pharmacies they were hired to control. Uh, they also make money off drug makers through rebates. They make money downstream through specialty pharmacies. In the case of CVS Caremark, you might recognize CVS Pharmacy. Caremark is the PBM, CVS is the pharmacy. And so their incentives have become distorted over time. Today, PBMs advertise that they are the only entity working to control prescription drug costs, but it's hard to marry that with the fact that they make a tremendous amount of money off of prescription drugs. So what's been happening in Ohio? So the pharmacists cry foul. Uh, as I was working for the Ohio Pharmacists Association, the pharmacists were coming to me saying, we saw a 60 to 80% cut in our gross margins within the Medicaid managed care plan, plans in Ohio. I went back to state officials, this was the, uh, under the Kasich administration, asked them what gives, you know, did I miss a policy change? Is, you know, Ernie Boyd going to fire me? Uh, and they said, no, in fact, we've spent more for prescription drugs than we ever have before. And so I didn't know a lot, but I knew enough to say, how can you cut pharmacy gross margins 60 to 80% within the program, and then on the other end of the spectrum, where the state is cutting the checks, they're not seeing the results of those savings. So it is well documented uh, that we had a lot of pharmacy closures within uh, about a three-year span. Uh, pharmacies across Ohio, mostly in underserved communities or rural parts of the state, or more urban parts of the state as well, they were closing their doors. Now, if you factored in openings and closures, about over a three-year stretch, uh, pharmacy, we lost about 200 pharmacies in the state of Ohio uh, over the three-year three stretch. Um, within those numbers, don't just look at the overall numbers of how many pharmacies you have in the state. It's where are they opening and where are they closing. They're closing in poor communities. They were opening in Upper Arlington and Dublin, Ohio. Okay, So uh, they were moving away from Medicaid because the pressure had, begotten, had gotten so significant. Now that's nothing new. We all know that Medicaid is not going to be the Cadillac payer in the marketplace, but it was directly impacting access in those neighborhoods regardless. That's where JMOC comes in. And um, when I was with uh, the Pharmacists Association, I will, I will concede I did not attend a lot of JMOC meetings. They were boring. Um, and they were uh, really centered around um, you know, rates, overall rates. And we really didn't get into the weeds. And um, I remember you know, a good friend of mine, you know, former Senator Dave Burke, who helped create JMOC, uh, really had a vision that JMOC would act as you know, some insight into what otherwise would typically be a very closed door from administration officials at the Department of Medicaid. Medicaid's very complicated, managed care is very complicated, and um, you know, this isn't just true in Ohio, it's true everywhere. The easy thing to do is close the door, turn off the lights, and you know, don't watch us do our jobs. And so JMOC represented a really good way to make sure that you know, we could at least 
keep that door open a little bit to see what the administration was working on. And so one of the things that we saw, uh, which really stuck out to me, and again, we didn't have a great idea what was going on, was Optimus, who was working on behalf of JMOC, was reporting on what was happening with prescription drug spend. And so meanwhile, we knew all this chaos was happening in the pharmacy marketplace. We started analyzing actual drug prices, specifically on the generic side, because that's where a lot of the bleeding was happening in the pharmacy level. So we started looking at national average drug acquisition costs, which is a CMS benchmark that tracks invoice acquisition costs that pharmacies pay to put the drugs on the shelves. And what we found is over time is that NADAC was deflating pretty significantly. So the generic marketplace was really working, all right? Drugs were going down in price. So the tuna, uh, it was anywhere, we, we, we saw, you know, industry uh, studies and we saw with our own data, generic drugs were deflating at a rate around 20, 30%, you know, over a year by year basis. Really, really good stuff. We were really interested when Representative, uh, then Representative Mark Romanchuk asked, yeah, I want an itemized receipt. I wanted to see the brands, the generics, and the specialty. And lo and behold, we saw generic drug costs actually increasing 1.8%, uh, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a big jump from what should have been about 20% deflation on the drug itself and massive underpayments that have been hitting the pharmacies as well. That number should have been going way down. Instead, it was going up. That's when the Columbus Dispatch comes a calling. Um, I tried really hard to work with the previous administration on this issue. And uh, I don't know, uh, for whatever reason, I know state agencies, I have tremendous amount of sympathy for them because they're under a lot of heat. Uh, sometimes, you know, we from the outside don't have a great understanding of what they're doing. Um, regardless, I felt like I was getting to run around. And we had been working with uh, the previous administration for years trying to get answers. We weren't getting them. And at that point, we had been digging into enough CMS data that we could quantify what we thought were a massive disconnect in pricing. So uh, I walked out of a meeting with the Department of Medicaid. I crossed a couple streets and walked through the doors of the Columbus Dispatch and uh, sat down with Marty Schlade and Kathy Kandiski and laid out everything that we had been seeing. Um, I hate speaking for them, but they said, we think there's probably a story here or two. Um, they've written a lot more than that <laughs> since then. Uh, we're in the hundreds, I think, at this point. Um, so PBMs wouldn't confess to paying pharmacies low, billing the state high, and pocketing the difference. It was at that point legislative leaders, many of you on this panel, um, you know, really leaned in. And uh, auditor, then auditor Dave Yost came in and said, we need to see what's happening. And so in April of 2018, the Department of Medicaid announced plans to uh, do their own review. As they were doing the review, we started digging into CMS data. So this map that you see on my slides here is straight from CMS. So we created it with their data, and CMS has two data sets, one called National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, which shows the average invoice cost that pharmacies pay to acquire drugs. And we stitched that together with CMS state drug utilization data, which is data that comes directly from state Medicaid programs for the Medicaid drug rebate program, and they essentially give CMS an itemized receipt and an average level on a drug-by-drug, quarter-by-quarter basis, what was the state charged by managed care for each medication. And what we saw was crazy, crazy disconnects, not only in the cost of the drug versus what the state was being charged, but also for the same drug, how can one state be charged something significantly different from what a state right next door is being charged. And this was not just small differences. It's not like 17 cents in Ohio, 18 cents in Indiana. We're talking about 41 cents, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the cost of, uh, of aripiprazole 15 milligram. This is the most popular uh, mental health medication in state Medicaid programs at the time. The actual cost of this medication was 41 cents. Washington Medicaid, 57 cents was how much they were charged. Illinois, 73 cents all the way to Ohio, $3.90 per pill. That's when the dispatch started driving around in their cars and grabbing thumb drives from pharmacies to see what they were being paid for medications and comparing it to some of the rates uh, that was in the CMS data. Within about 40 pharmacies worth of data, they saw that there was about a 12% markup on top of all generic drugs. Shortly thereafter, the Ohio Department of Medicaid released their own review that was uh, completed by a company uh, here in Ohio called Health Plan Data Solutions. Uh, they revealed about $224 million in delta between what the pharmacies were paid by PBMs in the Medicaid managed care program 
and what they turned around and charged the MCOs and the state of Ohio for those same uh, claims. Um, eventually, we found out there was an initial $20 million uh, that, that occurred under the Centene plan. I won't get into that, but uh, I think it's been well documented what's happened with, with that. Um, and basically, regardless of, of how much they were taking, one of the key findings in that report was the going rate for typical PBM services uh, was about three, three to six times. So Ohio was getting charged three to six times with the going rate of what typical PBM services were. So it charged many times over, significantly more what the, what the going rate is. Uh, soon after, then Auditor Dave Yost released the results of his own audit, saw wide disparities in spreads from county to county, saw that most of these spreads were being harvested on generic drugs, which are constantly fluctuating in price, which creates a lot of opportunity for gap, and also saw that uh, gross gener or generic state spending on generic drugs uh, accounted for about 31.4% 31 of all spending on generic drugs went to PBMs. But in fairness to our state officials in Ohio, who I think do, I, I do feel bad uh, for the previous administration because they were not alone. This is happening to everybody. Uh, we did an analysis in the state of Michigan. If you could burn a chart into your brain, this is one I would recommend. We had 450, we all know how secretive everybody in the drug supply chain is, okay? We had 450 pharmacies in the state of Michigan voluntarily send over all of their reimbursement data within the, within the Michigan, uh, state of Michigan so that we could analyze what they were being paid in their Medicaid program versus the actual cost of the medications as reflected by national average drug acquisition costs and compare that to the average rates that the state of Michigan was being charged for those drugs. So in this chart, the blue line represents the average cost for pharmacies to acquire these medications. The green line represents what pharmacies were actually paid, the 450 pharmacies. The orange line represents what managed care plans on behalf of their PBMs were reporting back to the state as the actual cost of, those, of all of those drugs. The cost of the drugs are going down, the pharmacy revenue going down, the pharmacy margins going down, but the PBM spreads going up, and it, while everything in there was deflating, the state's costs on these drugs were actually increasing over that time period. So the previous administration required the MCOs and their third-party administrators, PBMs, to, uh, to take the spread out of the data. Stop taking spread and putting it in the data that you send to us as the State Department of Medicaid because it was inflating all the, all the data that the state was using to set capitation rates, look at medical loss ratios, et cetera. And here's what happened to the CMS data the, the, the very quarter that that happened. This is all Ohio data. The blue line represents the average cost of these medications. The orange line represents what the state's reported costs were for those medications. And as you can see, in the third quarter of 2018, when Ohio said stop putting the spread in the data, all of a sudden the balloon pops. Now, not every drug, and so this is where, this is where we move away from memory lane. Okay, so which drugs didn't deflate? And so this is why I want to talk about issues in the drug supply chain that go beyond spread pricing. In spread pricing, PBMs are paying pharmacies low, billing the state high, and pocketing the difference. Well, so after the state said no more spread in the data, it begs the question then, why did certain drugs not deflate? Because now the data shows exactly what pharmacies are being paid. And so we did an analysis to assess which drugs were still being wildly overpaid to pharmacies? Okay, why would PBMs, you, heard, you hear complaints from pharmacies all the time, they underpay, they underpay, they underpay. Well, why, what would drive a PBM to overpay for certain medications? What we found was the drugs that had exceptionally high markups relative to everything else just so happened to be predominantly dispensed through pharmacies owned by the PBMs themselves. That wasn't the only thing that happened. All of a sudden, we saw the growth of these effective rates. So back to, you know, I think what Director Brady was, uh, had asked me to talk about today. So in Ohio, after the state ban spread pricing, again, pharmacies getting paid low, getting state getting billed high, pocketing the difference, all of a sudden, pharmacies saw massive increases in their reimbursements at point of sale. I was still with the Pharmacists Association at the time. I thought they were going to build a statue of me outside of OPA headquarters, okay? They were so excited that finally the problems went away. And so what happened was is that they started getting overpaid. 
okay? That's a relative term. I say it relative to what they were getting paid before. In July 2019, the Columbus Dispatch, again, in one of many, many articles, uh, looked at this issue of, wow, if we get rid of spread pricing, does that mean pharmacies get paid more? Are they the new ones we need to watch? And what they found was that a lot of pharmacies, their contracts didn't change. So they were getting paid the exact, they were supposed to be getting paid the exact same rates they were getting before. But instead, what happened was, and we saw this happening in other states, PBM started overpaying the pharmacies relative to their guarantees. So Senator Huffman, one of the things you were asking is, what should have the pharmacy been paid? All right, well, in the old way, they were getting paid close to what they should have been paid relative to their contracts. Well, then after the state ban spread pricing, all of a sudden, the PBM started overpaying relative to their contracted guarantee with the pharmacies, essentially building up an excess that they would have the ability to later claw back, whether that be six months, 12 months, whatever down the line. And so the question is, and I know that pharmacies, you know, I think, I think one of the things that we tend to think of is pharmacies complain that they're not getting paid what they're supposed to. Sometimes that happens, but that's actually not what, what, what you should be thinking about right here is, if a, if a PBM contract with a pharmacy says, we're gonna pay you AWP minus 87%, average wholesale price minus 87% of all those drugs, the question then is, shouldn't they pay them AWP minus 87% throughout the duration of that contract? And they don't do that. Instead, what they do is pay AWP minus 70 or 69, whatever it is. They overpay them throughout the duration of the contract, even though everything we know about insurance, what do insurance companies like to do? One of the ways they make money, they make money off premiums and they invest it as much as they can and delay paying providers as much as, as, much as they can so they can invest it as long as they can. Yet here they do the exact opposite to their, to their actual incentives, where they give pharmacies excess cash flow. Why would they do such a thing? Unless they purposely wanted to overinflate those payments so that they could claw it back later. Hiding the money from pass-through pricing requirements. So back to our Michigan analysis. We saw this phenomenon in the state of Michigan. In the middle of 2018, they banned spread pricing. And so our pharmacy reimbursement data that we were examining exploded. While pharmacies were essentially being paid very close to the actual acquisition cost of drugs throughout, throughout the, uh, the surveyed year, after the state banned spread pricing, certain PBMs increased their point of sale reimbursement. So at the pharmacy counter, when the claim is live, patient is in front of them, the reimbursements to pharmacies increased by 105% or 125%. They doubled after months and years of them being in the pits. No contract changes, just changes in how the PBMs chose to flow money through the pharmacies. So the dispatch wrote, wrote, uh, wrote about this phenomenon uh, earlier this year, and they've done a follow-up article on this. We are talking, so I mentioned we work with Medicaid fraud control units now, state Medicaid agencies, attorney general's offices, state auditors. This issue is the next big issue, all right? So if you thought spread pricing was, you know, turned into a big deal, this is spread pricing just done in a different way. In spread, you pay the pharmacy low, you bill the state high or the, the employer high, you pocket the delta. Well, now in order to, to comply with pass-through pricing, you pay the pharmacy high, you report that number back to the state or the employer and comply with no spread, and then you build up that excess, claw it back later, and never net it out with the, with the, with the uh, plant sponsor. Now it doesn't, it's not just bad on the, on the PBM side. This is an example of how pharmacies could take advantage of this, okay? In the state of Florida, we did a public records request where we could see drug by drug, day by day, pharmacy by pharmacy, plan by plan, PBM by PBM, what the state's reported costs were for every drug dispensed in their Medicaid managed care program. And we found certain drugs that were overpaying pharmacies significantly at the point of sale. And when it did, all of a sudden we saw more and more prescriptions being generated for those products. Now how do they do it? I have no idea. But when you're underpaid on a lot of claims, and paid fairly on others, and overpaid on others, as a provider, Whatever you can do to maximize your exposure to overpaid and minimize your exposure to underpaid, thus treat some patients better than others, et cetera, et cetera, 
the more you're going to work in that direction, whether it's because you're trying to keep your business afloat or you're taking advantage of the system. This system is built for manipulation. And just when you think you have the answers, the drug supply chain will change the questions. So this is a chart from Nephron Research, or a Wall Street analytics firm. The two bars on the bottom of this chart reflect the amount, the, the, the percentage that PBMs profit off of drug maker rebates and spread pricing. As you can see, over time, that has been deflating. They're ahead of us, okay? They know what to do. And as their reliance on rebate and spread revenue goes down, it's giving way to increased money on fees and specialty pharmacy fulfillment. Let me repeat, specialty pharmacy fulfillment. PBMs make their most, the most amount of money and profit off of the dispensing of specialty medications. Yet they will tell you that they are here to save you money. So how do you fix these things? You eliminate conflicts of interest. You de-link drug supply chain composition, uh, comp, uh, compensation from over-inflated list prices. You need full transparency, and not just until the money hits the pharmacy, but months, if not years after it, after the fact. You need objective pricing benchmarks. If we were to build this system and say, Walgreens or Rite Aid, send us the bill, we'll pay whatever you send. We'd say that's a stupid system, okay? Why do we allow PBMs or any member of the, of the drug supply chain who profits off of the prescription to set the prices that we are exposed to, whether that's employers, Medicaid, et cetera? We need objective definitions for key terms and contracts. Previous hearing where Linda Kahn came in and, and uh, talked about that. Uh, we need standard services. Standard services should have standard payment terms. There should not be ambiguity in how, how uh, providers are compensated and how the state is billed. If we want to pay for services and value outside of a standard service, we should do that, but divorce it from the actual prices of the drug where opacity creates opportunity. You need full pass-through of drug maker price concessions. And you need to understand the full risks and opportunities of vertical integration. Vertical integration can be used for good, but can also be used to make money under the table in unethical, anti-competitive ways, or in ways that do not align with the intent of the legislature or their State Department of Medicaid. I just want to say thank you. Um, JMOC has brought light to um, an industry that didn't have it. Um, the Dispatch, the Capital Journal, these folks got a lot of real estate that they don't have in journalism to dig in. And you all have a lot on your plates. There's a lot going on in Medicaid. Pharmacy, you know, arguably has gotten its overshare of attention. But these problems do not get rooted out unless you dig in and you really sweat on it. And I give a lot of credit to members of this committee and others who came before um, for dedicating a lot of time and energy to it. And with that, I'll turn it back to questions. Thank you, Mr. Chow Chow, for your uh, testimony. We're going to start with Senator Huffman. Hey, thank, you. thank you for coming. So, uh, simplistically here, uh, let, let me, I think you've circled back to the rest of the story. So, um, uh, the drug, again, from the example, was, 50, uh, was $50, but um, it was a, they were paid 100 They should have got paid 50 um, and they said, so the, I'm Can I redo it? If I sure. could, can I redo sure. it for you? Sure. All right. So let's say a pharmacy bought a drug for $40, okay? And let's say that a fair rate of margin for the pharmacy is at 50, okay? So they get $10 in margin. Let's for the sake of conversation. The PBM, or the pharmacy is going to bill the, the PBM, whatever the heck they want, usual and customary price, sticker prices that are, have no basis in reality. All right, they get paid $100 at the point of sale. Now, the clawback is, let's say, brings them back to 40. The pharmacy's upset because they made no margin. But let's pretend that that's what, the, what that they were contracted to get. Sure. They got what, was their, what their contract said, regardless of whether it's fair or not, that's the contract. Mm -hmm. To me, the biggest thing that I would be concerned with from a lawmaker's perspective, an oversight perspective, 
is if I'm the state of Ohio, what does my receipt say? Okay. Did I get charged 100 or did I get charged 40? Okay, so I, I guess that if I may chair. So they get pay, pay uh, 100, they tell the state, hey, we paid them 100, and the state said, okay, here's your, your, your 100, and at some point later you claw back the 60, and that difference of that $60 is never reconciled with the state. I don't know if the state has visibility of that. I can tell you from working with other Medicaid okay. uh, programs and AG's offices that they're not getting the reconciliation. They're not finding out that after the fact that the 100 turned into 40. Okay. Um, and, and so an, uh, Senator Huffman. Okay, sorry. All right. Fine, Mike, sir. Okay. All right. Um, so there, there's some independent, most of the PBMs are owned by large pharmacy, pharm, uh, pharmacies, right? CVS and care. Yes. Okay, and, and, but there's some independent. How do these independent, um, they're, they're hired by, um, for the, let's go to the for-profit, because I think the for-profit has something to teach the, the government. You know, they go to, to, to the for-profit. How, do, how does the, the, the for-profit company keep this in check? Uh, so great question. Um, right now, they're not. They're not. So the for, for the for-profit companies are just letting their, their profits go to the PBMs, too? Well, just this week, okay, Purchasers Business Group on Health, who represents some of the largest companies in the country, Boeing, Walmart, mm -hmm. okay, they just announced we can't deal with this anymore and we have to find a new way. So Purchasers Business Group on Health just announced they're trying to start their own PBM so they could fix some of these problems. Okay. Thank you, Chairman. You bet. Um, Representative West. Yes. Uh, thank you, Antonio. Thank you so much for a thorough presentation. Thank you for a thorough presentation. Um, how does this affect uh, the JMOC rate? So it's an excellent question and something that I don't understand everything that goes into the rate setting process on your end, okay? And the way that the state develops capitation rates for the plans as well. And this is something I've talked about with Medicaid, I've talked about with some of the plans as well is, is that how you determine what rates should be is predicated on what. And if the what is the data being submitted to you from managed care plans, and in this instance we're talking about pharmacy claims, the question then is, are they basing it off of the $100 or the 40? And if it's the 100, if that is factored in any way, shape, or form, that means that those rates are overinflated just like they were when spread pricing was involved before. Representative West. Thank you for that. Um, when we look at how that then affects uh, government premiums, right? Legislators premiums, uh, state employees premiums, how does that then affect? Does that raise their rates if we know they're clawbacking $160 or $60? So I would simplify it even more to say, are the drug prices with which premiums are being set based upon, are they inflated or not? Are and they? if they're inflated, then the premiums are inflated. Okay, one more quick question. Representative West. The um, employers, everyday employers, um, are they then being fraudulently, or are they being cheated, if you will, in this process? Depends on how you define cheated. I mean, I think, I think uh, PBMs would say, and their brokers that sometimes plan sponsors work on behalf and refer these types of uh, what I think are bad contracts to, they would say they got what they asked for. And I would say that in general, so let me give you an example. There's been a lot of scrutiny about drug maker rebates. You know, PBMs get big rebates from drug makers, and the question has been, how much of those rebates are being passed through to the patient or the plan sponsor or the employer. And so if I am an employer, all right, I will say, well, I don't want my PBM to have that incentive that they profit off of the rebates being generated on brand drugs. I'm going to require full pass-through pricing. All right, so all those rebates, I'm going to say they have to come back to me. And so they're acting in their best interest. They're saying, look, I want all those discounts. Well, PBMs, 
architect contracts, okay, in a complicated system. And so what we've seen when working with employers is that PBMs are being very meticulous in how they define what a rebate is and what it isn't. I would say that if Pfizer is paying a rebate to Express Scripts, okay, or any compensation to Express Scripts, being the PBM, I'd say every dime that Pfizer pays Express Scripts, that's a rebate. PBMs are saying, not so fast. 25% of that is a rebate. And then we have a formulary access fee, a, trans a transaction fee, et cetera. They fee it to death. And so the employer is unsuspectingly signing things that they think, okay, solves these problems. We see a lot of employers say, no more spread pricing. And then these types of things are what architect. And this is where I give a lot of credit to the role of you all and journalism, because most employers have no idea what is in these multi-hundred page contracts to begin with. It is complicated for a reason, because with mystery comes margin. And then one, one final question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. Um, is it time for us to do a tiered system? I mean, I heard you say uh, CVS has, you know, obviously Caremark, and they're in both sides of the equation. If somebody's in this space, should we have a tiered system to where individuals cannot be in a conflict of interest uh, in this space? I generally advise plan sponsors of all shapes and sizes, divorce yourselves of conflicts of interest wherever you can. Um, you know, I, one, well, I don't have this slide in here, but one of the things that we saw in the state of Florida was that the one large managed care plan who got the cheapest, uh, the cheapest specialty uh, pricing was the one that prohibited their PBM from being the, the specialty pharmacy of choice. Um, so uh, our, our counsel to folks is, um, remove the conflicts of interest wherever you can. Representative Holmes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for that. That was super helpful. It's, you know, we can go through that a dozen times. There were three parts. You said one thing uh, that caught my attention, because it really, the struggle we're having with identifying what's a factual price. You said, uh, you mentioned that generic drug prices fluctuate a lot. Why, why does that happen with the generics especially? Great, uh, Chairman. Uh, with generic marketplace, so a brand drug, single manufacturer, and we study brand drug prices on a month-by-month -month basis. And I'll tell you that most brand drugs, if they change at all, will change once per year. And usually that happens in January. Sometimes you will see uh, mid-year price increases, although the degree with which and the number have been going down. Generic drugs, you have, now that the, the secret sauce has been given to the marketplace, you could have 15, 20, 25 different manufacturers of that drug. And they're in massive competition with one another to lure in wholesalers and pharmacies to purchase those products. So you have a constant jockeying for position in the marketplace because there is a lot of people producing that product. So because of that, you can see price deflate rapidly on generic drugs. Now sometimes you can have supply chain issues that could cause certain manufacturers to get out, or you have certain raw ingredients that are gone, and all of a sudden that could cause those prices to spike. But in general, you see much more volatility, even though it's an overall downward trend, you see a lot more volatility with the generic drugs than you do with brand drugs. Representative Holmes. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. That's great. And I can recognize now that pharma the uh, pharmaceutical, the manufacturers could probably dictate supply and availability on their own if they're actually manufacturing the product, and they might be able to forecast that. Mm -hmm. And that might really allow them to set prices and establish clawback dates that were beneficial to them. Yes. I wanted, the second question I wanted to ask you was, um, the single PBM might really help us as a body and as, an <laughs> as a community have better oversight on those pricing and get more transparency in there. Multiple PBMs, could, would there be a way to set that up so there's market forces so they have to compete on more uh, competitive prices? Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Chairman, this is, uh, I don't like offering too much editorial on, on how it should be structured, but I'll, I'll, do, I'll do it for the sake of being uh, helpful. You know, I care very little about how many, a PB, how many PBMs, a Medicaid program, you know, uh, employer, et cetera, want to work with, okay? 
What matters more is the governing structure over, whether it's 20 PBMs or one PBM. That's say for simplicity's sake, having a direct relationship with the PBM gives you greater control, you know, greater oversight, and it's less complicated, okay? And I will say that I believe that the way that this Department of Medicaid has architected the single PBM, choosing vendors that, at least to my knowledge, have no conflicts of interest and are lean and mean, I think that for simplicity's sake, that is a very good approach. But I put that off to the side and say, what matters more is how, do, how are prices set within the program? That matters way more than one versus two versus 20. Senator Antani. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your testimony. So, um, you know, in 2017, I joined the Health Committee in the House under uh, Chairman Huffman. He can keep that title because he's been chair of the House and the Senate. And there was a bill to do uh, repeal the clawback, right? Uh, gag rule, clawback, carve out. Right, that's kind of the tertiary way I would refer to them all. So how can I take sort of this, you know, sounding of the alarm that the British are coming seriously when this bill has actually been out there for four years and, you know, the proponents of the bill to get rid of the clawback, the ability to clawback, have been advocating for this for four years? Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator Antani, Clawbacks, uh, the bill that you're speaking to, uh, that language actually did pass. Uh, I believe uh, most of the members of this committee actually voted for it. Uh, so right now I think one of the big questions is whether or not what's currently happening you know, uh, would qualify as something that's illegal or fraud, waste, and abuse. Senator Antani. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, you know, we're now saying this is happening in Florida and Michigan. Do you have any evidence that mirrors Ohio to your studies in Florida and Michigan? So uh, what I would say is if I don't get to see what's happening on the Medicaid side of the ledger, it's hard for me to say that that's exactly what's happening. But what we can see is that there is an abrupt change in pharmacy payments in a post-spread world. And so to agree with which we've seen the directional uh, change in pharmacy payments upward as yielding this effective rate issue uh, in other states, it is happening here. And I'll tell you that, uh, because I've still talked with many pharmacy owners, that there are, in fact, some massive clawbacks being levied, and, and a huge proportion of them are coming off of Medicaid managed care claims. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Antani. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, and so why raise these things now when a single PBM is going to occur and all of the reforms that come along with it? I think, I think that's a, I, Chairman, I think that's a very, I think that's a fair question. Um, you know, I think that the single PBM certainly extinguishes the fire, but I think that you have a, you know, a greater issue of what I would just broadly characterize as integrity of the program. You know, spread pricing was prohibited and banned and sued over because of its direct relationship with uh, inflating the cost of medications in the Medicaid program in a way that was ballooning capitation rates. So regardless of whether the single PBM is eliminated tomorrow or a year from now, I think it's a very real issue that if the uh, prescription drug claims are inflated, um, that's probably something that would want to be addressed by an oversight committee. Representative Russo. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Thank you for being here. Um, great presentation and a nice overview of all that's happened in the last couple of years. I did want to go to your slide 24, and, and basically you were talking about the PBM gross profits. Um, and how they've shifted percentage-wise into where those profits come from, which I appreciate. But my real question here is, you know, this, what this doesn't show, though, is how have overall profits changed? Are they, did they go down? Did they go up? Did they stay the same? I can appreciate what comprised these profits and where sure. they got them from changed. But that's my question to you, and if you know, and I don't know, I don't know if this came from you or someone else. This but is, this is uh, from Nefra, but I've seen, uh, so I'm actually working on a study right now that looks at PBM revenue. Uh, it's just not finished yet, and it bears out with, with this as well. Um, if your ask is on overall profitability, I would look towards uh, a couple things. So PBMs, you know, were very efficient claims processors, you know, very, not really a material impact on the marketplace today. The big three are Fortune 15 companies. 
Um, if uh, there's a slide that I use, I don't have it in this one that looks at uh, just stock performance of managed care PBMs over time relative to pharmaceutical companies and uh, pharmacies. And um, it's hard, it's, it's, it's not a quite fair analysis because managed care plans and PBMs do so much more than just managed drug benefit. But if you wanted to look at, you know, kind of overall profitability of industry, your managed care plan, PBM is, you know, significant trajectory upward relative to other members of the drug supply chain. Uh, in terms of how they, how much profits they make, a lot of that is a little bit under lock and key. There's actually some really interesting Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg articles on how PBMs categorize and, and report uh, profit within SEC filings. So if um, you really want to dork out, I can happily, happily send that through the chair. Thank you. Uh, quick follow-up. Um, so my follow-up question is, you know, as is is we're thinking about this, and it's like we're squeezing one part of the balloon, and it's just expanding somewhere else. Um, and I'm also struck by, you know, what's also happening in the market right now. So we have uh, a lot of mergers and acquisitions. These companies are getting bigger and bigger and controlling more of the market share. They're starting to integrate vertically, so you've got... Uh, manufacturers who are now also in the business of be, being the PBM or the PBM that's also in the business of being uh, the pharmacy. Um, and all of those walls are sort of collapsing between the supply chain. And I guess where does that constrain us in our ability to really get at this issue um, and create what is most efficient for our state dollars when you know, there are lots of conflicts of interest that are happening within how the supply chain operates because of these huge uh, mergers that are happening. Uh, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that because that continues to be a challenge as we move forward that I'm not sure a single PBM is going to entirely solve. Chairman, uh, Representative, I think it's a very fair question. I think uh, I. I this is, uh, these are the types of things that uh, keep me up at night sometimes is, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say we need to prohibit managed care plans from doing any services whatsoever underneath, man essentially not being, being more than an insurance company, right? Um, but you have to uh, grapple with the fact that, and I'll, I'll unfairly pick on, on CVS here, you know, CVS is a pharmacy, they are a PBM, they own Aetna, they're a health plan and they have their own clinics. So they're managing, they're managing the benefit in a way that, let's say, they're, regardless whether it's being used good or evil, whatever, but so you have somebody that is handling the overall management of the, of the benefit, the insurance premium, who owns the prescriber, who owns the claim processor, who we just established can make good money off of facilitating the claim, and owns the pharmacy that's dispensing the product. From patient perspective, I think about it very hard, not just to call out CVS, but really anything. Do I want my prescriber owned by my pharmacy company? Um, I don't know about that. Um, so I just think, it, I think, it, I think it's not to say boo, but it's to say this is where I think accountability and oversight and a complete understanding of the incentives and revenue streams are so important because these conflicts don't, aren't just big today, but they're magnifying moving forward. Representative Lips. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for being with us today. Um, you mentioned the big three, and we've talked about that a little. And in this previous discussion with Representative Russo, you talked about their vertical integration. How, what's a percentage of scripts that those three control in the United States? Uh, Chairman, uh, to Representative Lips, uh, there is... Uh, it's hard to get at that, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. So 75 to 85% of the PBM marketplace is taken up by the big three. Uh, but competitor PBMs, all right, because ultimately this is a leverage game, uh, anytime you're talking about purchasing with leverage, the bigs create big discounts for themselves, and that happens at the expense of small. And so many smaller PBMs that seek to disrupt this marketplace it is hard for them to get the same or even close to the degree of discounts that the big ones are negotiating with the drug makers and with the pharmacies as well. So um, I would say on paper it's 75-85%, but one of the things that small PBMs do is they will rent pharmacy networks from their own competitors 
in order to latch onto those uh, already established rates. And so from that standpoint, you could argue that that percentage becomes significantly higher. Representative Luke. Thank you, Chairman. Um, we talked about specialty pharmacies. Do all three of the, the big three own their own specialty pharmacy? And, and talk about steering. What percentage do they steer to their own specialty pharmacies? pharmacies? Oh, uh, Mr. Chairman, the representative, um, it, it really depends on the plan. Uh, I'll give you some of the more recent data that we've, that we've been looking at. You know, when it comes to cheap brand name drugs, uh, and essentially anything that's $2,000 or less, I actually, I, I actually have this in the appendix, so I'll, I'll show you from the, this is what we did in the state of Florida. Um, so we looked at brand specialty drugs, okay? Anything that is less than $2,000, all right, the largest plans in the Florida Medicaid Managed Care Program, uh, when it came to the cheap brand drugs, they, they filled less than 1% of all of those uh, prescriptions. But when it came to the expensive brand name drugs, so those that were over $2,000, there was a magnetic pull in the direction of pharmacies owned by the PBM. So they were filling a disproportionate share of the specialty, of the expensive specialty brand medications in the Florida Medicaid Program. Um, this wasn't part of your question, but I'm gonna say it because it's on the slide is in every one of those instances, it was more expensive when the drugs were dispensed at the PBM-owned pharmacy versus when it was dispensed at non-affiliated or traditional community pharmacies. One more, Chairman. Representative Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, we've talked about lawsuits and, and issues with trying to open this black box. How many states are in lawsuits with their PBMs that were supposed to be their partners? Uh, Chairman, uh, Representative Lips, uh, I've lost track, uh, to be honest with you, and part of that, I will say, is because a lot of the states are involved with some of the same cases, so a lot of times they will, uh, you know, piggyback onto others. Uh, at this point, I would say it's a majority of states at this point that are now involved in active litigation uh, in some way, shape, or form with PBMs. And my final question. Lips. I'm sorry, Chairman, promise, maybe, maybe almost. Um, will our attempt at a single PBM, we had to do something, spread pricing was killing us and whatever, we've been down this path, will our attempt at a single PBM work? Uh, Chairman Representative Lips, uh, I left my genie bottle at home, uh, but you know, I have a tremendous amount of faith in what this administration is, is building, and I have a tremendous amount of faith in the philosophy with which they're building it with. Um, you know, they are moving to a better aligned system, more transparent pricing that's based on objective pricing benchmarks rather than the whims of the market, uh, you know, or, or its market participants, I should say. Um, and you know, I think that at least the last I saw, I believe I caught this in a in a dispatch article when they announced that the single PBM who was uh, Gainwell Technologies. Um, actually, this is this is a, this is a JMOC spin to this. So uh, back in one of the prior hearings, uh, Senator Coley, when he was still on this committee. Uh, uh, very eloquently said, you know, $244 million in spread pricing was only spread pricing. As I showed you on one of those slides, there's a lot of different ways that PBMs can make money. So $244 million, which was already three to six times the going rate for PBM services, that was just one line item in the PBM, you know, um, you know uh, Excel sheet. And so um, the estimates that I believe the state said, and Director, you could correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but they project, I think, over uh, uh, just around $200 million in savings per year. So I think Gainwell, the contract was like $21 million per year. Uh, their uh, Myers and Stouffer contract, the oversight folks, I think that was about $1.5 million per year. Um, and so, I mean, we're not even talking, you know, the same league at this point. Uh, $244 million on spread pricing alone, under $25 million all in uh, uh, for the new model. I think that kind of speaks for itself. <clears throat> Senator Thomas. Thank you. Uh, I want to go back to, uh, you talked about governing structure. I've always said there's nothing new under the sun. In your efforts to take a look at all of this, as well as research around the country, is there a governing structure that you can direct me to, or this committee to, to look at that pretty much is doing it the right way. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator Thomas, um, you know, I, uh, 
I hesitate to say this because I think, um, as I realize that they're in the room, but I, I honestly think that what Ohio is, is building is, is the right way to go. Uh, again, from a structure perspective, how the fundamentals of the system are built. Um, this, as I mentioned on one of the slides, just when you think you've got the answers, they change the questions. And so, uh, to Representative Russo's point, you know, are we just squeezing the balloon? Well, why don't we just pop the damn balloon? You know, so. Uh, and so that's, I think that is one of the, uh, I think the states that are pursuing this and really looking for um, holistic change, you know, that's where I think they need to go. From a policy perspective, I think it's very hard to calibrate the marketplace in a way that gives you everything that you need because statute becomes stale the second that the ink dries on it. It uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue it. I think there's certain things that can be done from a transparency and accountability perspective, fundamentals that overarch how the pivots happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I can't say that I've sat down and said, this state has done it perfectly in a way that not only encompasses the Medicaid program, but recognizes that there's an entire commercial marketplace of employers who are facing these exact same struggles as well. Thank you. Representative West. Quick. Very quickly, well, let me say, first of all, uh, Director Kirkman back there is just happy for you right now. So that's uncommon, I think. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me just uh, say this, because we talked a lot about uh, pharmacies. We talked a lot about PBMs and we talked a lot about MCOs. And believe me, I have a tremendous amount of respect for all of them in all of those different veins. However, what do we need to do to get lower drug prices to all the Ohio constituents around the state of Ohio? Um, all right, Chairman, uh, Representative West, I see um, West Virginia recently passed some legislation that requires PBMs to pass all rebates from drug makers back to plan sponsors and patients. Oh, okay. I think that that is uh, some pretty innovative stuff. I have no idea how it's going to go, right? Uh, uh, the previous administration uh, nationally had a proposal that would have eliminated uh, the rebates. So they were looking to uh, – rebates are, are – uh, there's an exemption to anti-kickback statute for drug makers and PBMs to engage in these kind of rebate practices. And so if you're getting an exemption to anti-kickback statute, I think by definition it tells you what a rebate is. Uh, so uh, I think that at a federal level, uh, you know, that's something worth looking at because in our research, and this is not just ours but everywhere, competition in, brand, in the brand name drug sector does not lower prices. It actually ra raises list prices and increases discounts. And so what matters is the degree with which you get access to those discounts. The other thing that I would add is, is that under the single PBM model, um, and I can't say I know exactly how the department's doing this, but they are moving to an actual acquisition cost survey where they're asking pharmacies, if not demanding, tell us how much you paid to acquire these medications. So to me, right now the marketplace has no trust because there's no such thing as price. And I think any way that we can insert an objective pricing benchmark into the system becomes something that all parts of the marketplace can start materially building off of in an effort to eliminate arbitrage, not just on the PBM side, but, a, but pharmacies, et cetera. Thank you. Last question, Senator Huffman. All right. Real quick, you, you said that generic drugs are very volatile. And I'm trying to understand that. You said there's 20 to 25 making this generic drug. Do they all have the same supply chain problem? Because you would think that through you know, theory of economics is that if you got 25 competitors and somebody has a problem, somebody else would keep the price down. How does it become volatile when you have 20 or 25 people in the market? Uh, Chairman, uh, Senator Huffman, perfect, uh, perfect question. So um, we see more volatility actually on the drugs that have less competition because the FDA could come into a, pr a particular production facility for a manufacturer who's, you know, has only two competitors in the marketplace and FDA could shut them down because they found a rat in the building or whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, and so all of a sudden, boom, now you have, you know, the, the price pops. You could argue that the more competitive generic drugs are more insulated from that. However, you do have rare occurrences um, in, see, 2017, uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, which, uh, um, 
was a, a, a drug for treatment of uh, lupus. Um, saw a massive shortage as a result of, a, a, of a, some ingredient uh, uh, access problems, as well as some FDA shutdowns of a couple manufacturers. And that price, because, or that, that price because it was not um, an overly competitive class of drugs, okay. it skyrocketed. It, it shot up exponentially. So essentially when there's two or three in the market making something, those are the ones that fluctuate, not the one of 20 or 25. Uh, Chairman, uh, Senator, uh, typically that's the case. Okay. If you really want to dork out about it, we actually have a, a dashboard on our website that tracks medic, uh, the market share of each drug manufacturer based on the pharmacies dispensing each NDC of the product. Mr. Chachow, thank you for your testimony. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to the Pelican Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.